Hey everyone, I'm Jerome Goodrich, and you're listening to Collaborative Craft, a podcast brought to you by Eighth Life. Will AI take our jobs? If only software was that simple. New technologies have a way of sparking our imagination in ways that don't match with the frustrating realities of integrating complex systems. Even a tool as thrilling as ChatGPT will only ever be able to work with what you give it. And integrations are full of underlying trade-offs and contradictions at deeper levels of a system. This fundamental truth of software, that it's inherently complicated and messy, means that small amounts of technical debt can quickly and easily snowball into organization-wide slowdowns. Low-code and no-code solutions can be convenient ways for teams to expand their capabilities within the happy path use cases. But what happens when it's time to pivot to meet new users and you need to add new software to your workflow? How can you innovate without causing a drag on your organization's wider tech ecosystem? In this episode, I chat with someone who's helped navigate these trade-offs at every layer of the tech stack. Jeff Ramnani is a principal crafter at Aethlite, and he started his career doing sysadmin work more than 20 years ago. Jeff recently gave an internal talk, provocatively titled, Declarative Systems Are a Lie, in which he made the case that we need to rethink our assumptions about some popular DevOps tools because the promises they make can only go so far. That all sounded very familiar. Replace DevOps tool with web framework or auth provider, and we're still talking about the same thing needing to consider downstream implications of the key decisions you make when designing software. So I wanted to get Jeff's thoughts about it. Without further ado, let's hear what Jeff had to say. Jeff, first off, it's just such a pleasure to have you on the show, man. I am very much looking forward to this conversation. As people probably aren't aware of, you recently gave a, what I would call a riveting talk at our internal conference about the limitations of declarative systems. So I'd like to do a little bit of housekeeping. What the heck is a declarative system? What do you mean by that? So that's a good question. Uh, It's good to define our terms, especially when we're going to talk about something like this. So what I mean when I say a declarative system, what I'm not talking about is the transition we've made as programmers from using imperative style looping of like four i equals zero i you know less than the length of the list style of thing in favor of you know map filter reduce the declarative systems i'm talking about are the systems that we program in that provide either no programming logic like css could fall into this category there are auto layout tools for mobile applications that fall in here. But from my personal experience, before I transitioned to programming, I spent a lot of time as a system administrator, build engineer. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the programming environments we use in there is mostly done in these kind of data description languages. It's XML, it's YAML, it's JSON. And those uh, those aren't the best programming environments because sometimes you need to do actual programming and you kind of hit the limits of those systems and it can be hard. Where did this talk come from? 
you know, you've had these experiences and encountered the limits of those systems. Why, why build a talk around it? Uh, it's for me, it was born out of frustration from using the tools. Not that the tools themselves are bad or the people who created them are bad, but it's hard to program in a system that doesn't have Turing completeness. Okay. What is Turing completeness? You're not going to get away with that. (laughs) (laughs) So Turing completeness is, I'm going to paraphrase here. When we think, and we commonly use the term, what we're usually talking about is being able to set variables, loop over data structures such that programs can be written recursively or like in their own terms. And often in these systems, we're told, uh, this is some received wisdom that I remember hearing, although I wish I could source like, during my research, I wasn't able to get to like, get blame on on who gave you that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I found, I found some evidence from the book Pragmatic Programmers when they were talking about metadata driven programming, which there's a lot of good advice in there, but sometimes we lose the plot and we then think, oh, we shouldn't use real programming for this because that's bad. It's bad and you shouldn't want it. When in reality, sometimes you do need variables and you do need to loop over a data structure or run a computation like a function and compute a value like a subnet mask or how many hosts should I deploy this to and, and things like that. Because, I mean, every deployed environment, every infrastructure environment is subtly different and you have to account for these for these differences, or if they're dynamic, you have to account for the dynamism. And we often need like actual real programming tools to be able to do that. Gotcha. So to kind of play back what I just heard, at some point during your illustrious career, you heard that programming in a sysadmin context is not something that you should be doing. There is a way to describe the state of the system that you care about without using any sort of programming because programming is just going to complicate things. And in reality, what you're saying is that, well, it would be nice if that was the case, but actually the use cases that you know I've experienced, the use cases that I've had require some of these programming paradigms to basically to fulfill the use cases. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's at least for me, it's a shorter path between my problem and my eventual solution. Sometimes the systems can get in the way of me solving the problem. And that's not to say that like programming in a declarative style, that's not bad saying what you want. And then uh, extracting out the details into somewhere else at the library or framework, that kind of stuff saves us time. But I'll give you an example. I've programmed using configuration management systems, Ansible and Chef, and they're both good systems. They both have their benefits and trade-offs, but Ansible, you write your automation in YAML. And even though it's a data description language, over time to accommodate everybody's use cases, they've had to add variables and looping and other things, other actual programming concepts to get stuff done to, you know, people had these uses, file bugs, find solutions, and then update the system. Chef went a different route. They embedded 
their kind of domain-specific language within Ruby. So if you're a Ruby programmer and you know Rake, Chef is kind of a similar idea in that it's a programming language embedded in Ruby, but it's focused around system administration. So Chef does have a larger complexity to learn and to get started with it. But having to do a task in either system, I enjoyed doing it in Chef because I could just use Ruby. I knew Ruby. I knew how to do things in Ruby. I knew how to import other dependencies in. And you know, I knew how the load path worked. Like I could leverage a lot of my existing knowledge and just apply it to this problem domain. And I get a lot of value for that. And I liked it. And that is one of the things that I think we sometimes lose sight of when we, uh, when we go kind of too far down the declarative rabbit hole is a way I'll describe it. So Jeff, I want to examine one thing that you said, which is that there is more complexity when you use Chef. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's just because you have to know Ruby in order to be able to use it. Is that fair? That's part of it, yeah. Okay. Chef specifically has a little more complexity than Ansible for how the system is designed. Chef sends information about each individual host to a server. Ansible doesn't need a server. All it needs for you to do is check out your configuration source code and it'll SSH into the server to do stuff. So there's some structural complexity differences, but one of the primary differences is you can get started more quickly in Ansible because you know you can use some examples and see kind of fairly clearly how to like install a package or install a template file using the YAML and get started really quickly without having to set up all this all this kind of infrastructure stuff. But the other part of it is, like you said, you have to now know Ruby instead of just this possibly smaller Ansible language. And so, if I'm reaching for a tool to provision some servers or something like that, based off of what you said, it seems like the obvious choice is Ansible. I don't have to know Ruby. I don't have to understand all of this underlying infrastructure and whatnot. And yet your talk is specifically about how maybe you shouldn't choose Ansible. Maybe, you know, maybe Chef is something that you should think twice about. Can you help me understand that a little bit better? This is where I have to come clean. I manage my laptop and my work computers and stuff with Ansible because I've worked in it long enough. I know it pretty well. My needs at home aren't that complicated. And I fit in like the you know 80% use case path and it works really well. I spent a long time managing my workstations with Chef, but I wasn't in kind of the target market for Chef. So it got kind of harder and harder to configure my lonely little laptop with it. And it was super easy to just switch over to Ansible. So I don't know if, I don't know if, I don't know if that may help, uh, will hopefully kind of put things in perspective. Cause one thing I don't want people to walk away from is that you shouldn't use Ansible, for example, cause I, th I think there's a ton of value in that tool. I just wonder, I wouldn't stop there. I think is where the thrust of my talk was. I spent a lot of time in my career plateaued kind of there. And I see a lot of other folks kind of plateau there. And I'd like to make the case that if you push through and also embrace the practice of programming, a greater power awaits and you get more leverage to accomplish your goals faster and more straightforwardly. That's kind of what I'm hoping at least. The juice is worth the squeeze is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Gotcha. I definitely value all the things I've learned about programming and software engineering because it's absolutely made me better at this. So another thing that you said kind of stuck out to me, uh, which is that when you're using Ansible at home, you fall into that kind of like 80% use case happy path. What happens when you don't? I guess where I'm trying to get to is like, it's actually maybe more complex to figure out what the heck is going on with Ansible and a declarative system when you don't fall into that happy path, right? It's a little bit easier to debug what's going on when you have the power of a programming language at your fingertips like you do with Chef. Yes, the kind of, how do I center the div and CSS yes. problem, right? That yes. complexity cliff of, exactly. yes, I know how to move the text from the left side of the box to the right. I'm a, I'm a Superman. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, how do I center this? Oh no, I don't know how any, I don't know how computers work. <laughs> right. And I feel like when I heard your talk, that was kind of like the light bulb that turned on for me, okay. which is like what you're describing is in general, just what kind of happens when you stray from the intended purpose of a particular tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a big part of it. If you use uh, an electric drill to push a nail into the wall, you're gonna have a bad time. Yeah. And part of the problem is that figuring out how to drive that nail into the wall with an electric drill is part of our job description. That's true. There's also, who sold the drill to solve the nail problem? Yeah. Like, that's, <laughs> that might be another podcast though. Well, tell me what you mean by that. Well, I mean, some, sometimes we sell our tools as like the all singing, all dancing, you don't need these other tools. My thing will do all of, take care of all of your needs, mm -hmm. right? And that our industry is very rife with that. Mm -hmm. And I understand the enthusiasm, but at the same time, sometimes it's counterproductive. You saying that, Jeff, reminds me, you have a particular situation at your current client where, well, why don't I let you explain? I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, uh, yep, I think I do. So one of the challenges we've had recently on our client project is that we have to integrate with a lot of external systems. Uh, it's a really large organization and sure, yeah. we're, we're a piece of it, but a lot of, we call them integration partners, depend on our system for, for information. And so we use an enterprise service bus to publish events out to any partner that needs to integrate with us. We've got a bunch of integration partners already working with us. One of my favorite parts about this system is I rarely have to troubleshoot it, it just works. But we're currently getting in a crop of folks who are working on new systems that are coming in with uh, low code and no code systems. What is that? Because I feel like those are, those are buzzwords that I've heard talk about and maybe they're self-explanatory, but do, would you care just to kind of give your quick five second definition of those things? Sure. Programmers are expensive and we're also pesky. We've got opinions about things, about how long <laughs> something's going to take, but also there is a lot of commonality in some of the problems in programming. And so sure. no and low code systems try to create visual tools for things like conditional statements and to be able to create like business workflows 
where somebody does need to be a programmer in order to accomplish some of these some of these tasks. That's my understanding. Gotcha. Like a the next generation of like Squarespace or Zapier or things like that. Kind of, but for like generic business problems. Got it. Imagine like your back office processing or an ETL process or something like that. Okay. So to continue, uh, so some folks are starting to come in with these systems and they're trying to get connected to our system. Uh, now we run in a very highly secure environment. And so we have unique authentication constraints. And one of the challenges that our partners who come in and try to integrate with us have is getting these systems to authenticate to our system with its kind of unique needs because we're not on that kind of happy path. For many of them, we can kind of get them over that hump, but it's almost always a painful process that requires custom code coming from somewhere, mm -hmm. often the vendor. Gotcha. So you work with the vendor to actually implement that custom code so that the these these folks can integrate with you? Nope. We're too busy for that. We've got our own, <laughs> we've got we've got our own fish to fry. Where we come in is troubleshooting and process of elimination. We know the system works. So it's like I said, a pretty big organization. So there's firewalls, there's different networks and different data centers. So, you know, let's verify that you can talk to the system, make sure there's no no networks dropping us in between. Okay, you can make a connection. Okay, now we can talk about higher level concerns. Like, can you authenticate? And are you authorized to do A, B, or C? Gotcha. You're essentially working with a black box, though. That's right. All you can understand is the interaction point with your system and kind of infer what might be going on within the black box from that. Yeah, and these are systems usually being developed for other partner organizations. I don't really get to get to see into their development process, but I do try to you know help them get unstuck when uh, when they need help. Right. And so when a integration partner is using a system like that, it would seem that they either work with the vendor to be able to implement the workaround or they have to change systems, right? If the vendor is never gonna support that workaround and what they're gonna do, then they're they're kind of left in a lurch, especially if that integration with your system is incredibly important. Right. Yep. That's one outcome. What usually happens though is people find a way, and that's how kludges are born. Okay. Short term short term fixes that turn into the way things are done for you know ten years. Yeah, and and kludges beget kludges in my experience. There's a that's right. proliferation that occurs because once your kludge becomes let's say creaky and no longer as robust as it once was, well, now you need a kludge to, to shore up your, your old kludge. That's right, yeah. So what's the alternative? I mean, it seems like a good idea to go with a service that is gonna abstract away the majority of the complexity from you, but there's also that real risk of of just kind of being left out to dry or the the kludges that proliferate and then having to maintain you know that ugly custom code it kind of seems like a catch-22 uh you're, you're you're damned if you do and damned if you don't because i can imagine that the other side of this is on a on a very extreme level would be a single purpose tool built for this particular integration or building the hammer 
to drive the nail, right? Yep. But a very specific hammer for that very specific nail. <laughs> Indeed. That happens sometimes. Sometimes that's the right thing to do. But in general, I'll say two things to keep in mind. If you're an engineer in the trench, think about where is my escape hatch? If I need to do something that isn't in the common case, how do I work around that? Can I write a script and have the system like Ansible execute the script, do a computation, say that's output, and then use the output for a task coming up next? That's one way. In that example that I used before, that's kind of one escape hatch you can use to like do some computation. But at the higher level, it's also also knowing where the escape hatch is. So if I'm buying your tool and we have to leave the happy path, well, can my staff, can they write custom code and load it in, in order to accommodate our differences? Because, you know, I'm business B and we're sure as heck not a lot like business A, right? Sure. Yeah. So one of the reasons these kind of low code and no code systems exist is because inside of a lot of companies, there are a lot of similarities to draw patterns from, but also every company does stuff a little differently. Otherwise, why would company B exist if they did everything just the same way company A did, right? And so, you know, hey, I'm Burger King, you can have it your way, but hey, I'm McDonald's, we do it one way so we can be more efficient, right? One is, you know, hey, we're gonna, compete against the low cost provider by giving the customer what they want. And so each business is creating their own custom special cases because that's what gives their business the kind of raisin to raisin terror to kind of do their thing. Speaking of a business's reason for being, one argument I've heard for low code or no code solutions is for non-product teams, like the marketing department wanting to launch a new landing page. The farther away you are from core, the more useful something like low and no code could be. My biggest issue with it as a custom software developer who is very biased and like would like to have a job for another 10 or 15 years, <laughs> uh, where I'm biased is that most of the sales pitches online are, we can do it all, right? We're not for your non-core business, we're for everything. And the example I'm giving is with integration partners that are part of their core business. And so that is... Have your CMS and your CRM in the same place. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, but it, it is fascinating though, right? Because it is empowering for some folks, but if somebody takes the sales pitch too far, it can kind of help them drive down a blind alley. What about when the decision has already been made? And as a software developer, you're trying to decide between, can I make this thing work? How do I make this thing work? Or... Do I rip it out and start it from scratch? Right. Yeah, because what happens now? We've got it. What do we do with it? The first thought that comes to my mind is, okay, how do I get the data out? Because the data has to be persisted somewhere. And so then the question becomes you know, replacing the logic, which I don't really have any visibility in terms of how large the systems created with this are. Previously in my career, we were often given like Excel spreadsheets or Microsoft Access databases and be like, oh yeah, one person was running a business process to this and you know they left and now we've got to figure out how it works. Or like, you know, one person is being crushed under the 
weight of supporting this thing. So, hey, we want to transition it into like a properly supported app with an engineering staff and stuff like that. And so I can imagine it ending up in around the same place where people start with these kind of tools because it gets them off the ground easy, helps them prove out a concept. But at some point when they want to make changes and it's outside of the kind of 80% use case that the vendor supports, that the conversations that we'll be having will be very similar. You know, we wrote this business process with this kind of low code system, but we need it to do X and like the vendor doesn't support this version anymore or tons of other reasons. And one person is, you know, been kind of managing this and they're kind of being crushed under the, under the load or as a business owner, like, mm, I'm worried about this person being the only one who knows how this really important business process works. So let's, you know, port the logic into a properly supported app that's part of our, you know, regular engineering portfolio. I could absolutely see it work that way. Oh, yeah, it's interesting. I don't think I thought about it that way before. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. This has been a, a fantastic conversation. Do you have any final thoughts, maybe for some of the folks who have these decisions to make? If I'm a business leader making decisions about what kind of solution that you know I should solve a problem with, I think a big thing is to kind of empower your people, but also be mindful of, okay, if we reach the limits of this, what is my escape hatch, right? How can I access the data within the system? So if the data is important to my business, I can pull it out and we can write a custom software system that, you know, kind of does whatever the tool we bought was doing, but does it you know, the way our business needs it, needs it to be done and accommodate our needs. It's really empowering to know how to, how to change the system to accommodate your needs. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really, really appreciate your time today. And hopefully we can do this again soon. Not going to lie. This wasn't such a bad way to spend a Friday afternoon. Though. No, no, it was great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Collaborative Craft. I want to thank my guest, Jeff Ramnani, for the wonderful conversation and to you all for listening. Are there things that you're seeing in your organizations that we didn't cover in this? What are some of the ways that you're seeing craft evolve within your teams? Let us know by heading to eighthlight.com slash collaborative dash craft or tweet us at at collab craft show. Please like and follow Collaborative Craft on your preferred podcast app. And if you like a particular episode, share your comments. We'd love to hear from you. And if you know anyone who's curious about the craft of software and the types of conversations we're having, please tell them about the show. The more people hear about the show, the more we can help others unlock their potential and build a better future. This episode was produced by our friends at Dante32. Bye.